Please hold whilst we connect you to Redacted. This is Lucy Bishop. And this is Fraser Greenfield. And this is Jonathan Ty. And you're listening to Jonathan Ty is the co-founder of Hatch Duo, an up-and-coming industrial design studio in Sunnyvale, California. He's worked on designs for companies like Sonos, Activision, and Logitech, to name a few. You can see his work in GQ, Business Insider, and the CBS series California by Design. Today, though, John has sat down with us to talk about what it takes to dream big, build big, and scale a design business from zero to hero. Welcome to the show, John, and thanks for being here. Let's talk about you. Introduce yourself. Who is Jonathan Tai in 100 words or less? All right. First of all, thanks so much for having me, Fraser and Lucy. I'm a simple man making my way through the galaxy like my father before me. Um, no, just kidding. I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and at a young age, I really love drawing and Basically, creativity led me through to being an industrial designer. I am the owner of Hatch Duo, as well as Aggregate, as well as another co-founder of Mood AI. So I'm, as you can see, a pretty serial entrepreneur. All of those are what I would consider creatively design-oriented ventures. And prior to that, I worked uh, primarily in the Bay Area as a design consultant for multiple consultancies, as well as startups and in-house at a large corporation. So we have to ask now, what did you think of the the latest trilogy of Star Wars? The latest trilogy, I loved it because it gave me nostalgia. I thought they could have done a better job and chosen better directors like Filoni. Just a better script. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like they did Kylo Ren dirty, though. Kylo Ren. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was, he's probably the main saving grace of the entire series to be honest totally and the worst part was i really liked the idea that ray comes from nothing and then they threw it all away in the last movie yeah 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 i agree with that as well (laughs) so give us a rundown right from the beginning how did you discover industrial design and what's your background yeah so i actually found out about industrial design quite late i was going to the university of california irvine down in southern california I was a studio art major, digital art minor. I was interning doing graphic design work, and I was like, man, I'm about to graduate, and I'm not really sure that this is exactly what I want to do, designing maps and brochures and pamphlets. Nothing wrong with that. It's just that wasn't really what I had in mind. And I think one summer, I was staying at my aunt's. We go to a beach house every summer. I think she had a friend who worked for a company called IDEO. I did not know what that company was, nor what they did, but she was like, hey, I think he works in this design space. It's creative and they do some fun stuff. You might want to talk to him. Long story short, I ended up talking to him, I think when I was between my junior and senior year of graduating college. And you know, soon enough, I found this thing called industrial design. I uh, looked it up on Google, found a forum called Core 77 and just went down the rabbit hole and was like, oh my gosh, there's all these sketches of shoes and sneakers. And I just fell in love because a funny thing about me is that I'm actually, I used to be a sneakerhead. So I collected Jordans all throughout high school. I had like tons of sneakers that I would go through. And I was like, I've always wondered who designs this stuff. And so when I started to look up industrial design, I discovered a guy named Tinker Hatfield, found out he worked for Nike just went down the rabbit hole and was like, man, that's exactly what I want to do. Yeah. I, I signed up. While I was my senior year graduating UC Irvine, I was at the same time going to Art Center at night. So I would finish my lectures during the day. I would drive two to three hours through traffic and LA traffic all the way down to Pasadena. And then I would take classes at night on transportation design and product design. And I just fell in love. I had planned to actually go to Art Center, but some family stuff happened. My mom came down with breast cancer and I'm actually from the Bay Area myself. And so... I decided instead of going to Art Center to go to a more local school so I could be closer to family. And so that's what I did. And I think the rest is history. I became an industrial designer after I graduated Academy of Art. I feel there's something so special about realizing you can go from 2D design suddenly to 3D design. For me, really similar story. I was really interested in graphic design, never actually studied it. But I had a similar kind of awakening moment where it was like, wait a second, 
this 3D, yeah, something no, that you've always taken for granted. And then you're like, oh my gosh, it's just endless. Why would I limit myself to the flat world? Yeah, it's. I think it's just such an amazing career because as creatives, especially if you love drawing, it's not only drawing in 2D, you're actually able to actualize the stuff in three dimensions, see it being used in physical life. And it's just, it never gets old seeing your product out there. Totally. You said you used to be a sneakerhead. What happened? I had children and I couldn't line up for, <laughs> I couldn't line up for drops anymore. But yeah, I used to be one of those guys who camp out 4am in the morning at Nike, get your bracelet and stuff like that. And you get two kids and pretty soon you realize you can't do that anymore. Now you're just in line for the mini sneakers and stuff. For the mini sneakers, yeah, for my son <laughs> and my daughter. <laughs> you're the founder of Hatch Duo. Can you talk us through the inspiration behind each of these ventures and what led you to start them? Sure, absolutely. So I think it would be good to give a little background on, on my work history before I got there, because that was, in a way, what influenced a lot of my trajectory. So when I graduated from Academy of Art, I actually took up my first job at a studio called Y Studios, a small little consultancy here in San Francisco. And there I actually worked on Sonos before they even became a public company and got my first taste of, oh, you can work for this design company that works on a whole bunch of other companies like startups. And so I started to just take note, right? And when I started at the studio, very small studio, because husband and wife run very small, I think two, almost like two bedroom suite office, very tiny. Mm. But shortly after, I think Sonos IPO'd, by all means, I don't know any of the details. We suddenly moved to a bigger office and I know that they bought the building too. So I was just putting two and two together in my head of designers, startups, ventures, capital, all that kind of stuff. So I was like, man, maybe I should work for a startup. From that point, I ended up getting a job at Soul Republic, which was this audio company that did headphones. I'm actually wearing the headphones right now. They were, I think, a $30 million funded company here in San Francisco, and they work with people like Calvin Harris, Steve Aoki, etc. Really cool. Is this the post-Beats boom? This is post-Beats. A lot of the team was from Beats. So the people I used to work with at Seoul, they were from the original Beats by Dre team. Really cool people, really talented folks. And got my first taste of what it would be like to work at a startup. Very fast-paced, really talented people, and just understanding that ecosystem. And I think at the time, that was the first time I was offered stock in a company because mm. before that I was working at a small consultancy. And so I was just learning all these things about business. And obviously I could go on and on about all the industrial design things, but I think these business side of things were really just taking note in my mind. And I was like, man, I wonder what it'd be like to, to start my own thing. But before that could happen, Solar Public as a startup, as sometimes things go, there was some stuff that happened. Basically, before I knew it, I got hired eight months in, I turned around and everyone was let go except me and my team. So it turned into a two office company into what was then, I think, me and maybe 10 other people. And me being a young professional, not knowing what's going on, I was like, yeah, I got to find another place to land. And so that place ended up being Ubiquity Networks, working for a billionaire named Robert Para. And this company was a public company. They do wireless technology, routers, internet products, you name it, right? basically a lot of wireless and smart home technology items. And that role was pretty interesting because as an industrial designer, you're always looking up to people like Jonathan Ives and you're like, how do I get a job like that? In terms of environmental context, this was as close as it could get. This was a position where I was leading North America, reporting directly to the CEO of a public company, learning directly from him. And I was still pretty young at the point. I think I was still under 30 at that point in time, and just basically getting my feet wet and all of a sudden managing global teams, pushing huge product offerings into retail, things like that. Before, my previous experiences were just more of a support role. And this was one where I got jumped and basically anything that I was accountable for, I had to report to the CEO. So that was a very high pressure situation. But the reason I'm bringing him up is through him, I got to meet actually a lot of very interesting people. So Robert Perra happens to own the Memphis Grizzlies, the NBA basketball team. And so through that, I got to meet a lot of really cool friends of his, one of them being an NBA scout, Derwood McCoy, who's still a good friend of mine. Got to meet Rick Fox, Aaron Gordon, just different types of people that I normally wouldn't meet, I would say, as a designer in our normal kind of design circle, right? And through meeting them, it's pretty interesting. A lot of them are entrepreneurial. And I ended up doing 
some side projects with some of them outside of work. Totally approved by my boss, by the way. I started to think, man, here it is. I have this talent to draw stuff on paper, make it real, make products out of it. And then all these really talented entrepreneurs are able to capitalize on that and scale that into businesses. Like, why am I not doing that? Why am I, why am I sitting here being the cog in the wheel? And so that was just this small little thought that just kept growing and growing. I think I was about a year in at the time and I was still young. I probably should be taking some risk now. Why not just try something on my own? I don't know what that was going to be, but I just knew I probably should try it. Being in Silicon Valley, you're surrounded by all of this tech entrepreneurship and everything like that. I got the bug. I think close to a year and a half in, I quit my job on a plane from Taiwan, a business trip back from Taiwan. And I quit and I started a company. Huh? Sorry, mid-flight. When I landed, when I landed. Oh, I was like, that was so awkward. That was was really bad timing. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh my God, why would you do that? Yeah. And that was actually the question, right? A lot of my family was like, why would you leave this super high paying job with great benefits and everything with a kid on the way? So I didn't tell you, I had a kid on the way. My wife and I were pregnant with our first child, Blakely, my daughter. And for whatever reason, my mind was like, yeah, this is the right time because you're only going to be able to take these risks now. And if you don't take this risk, you're just going to be more conservative as time goes on, right? Especially when you have kids, right? And what happened was I started a company called Aggregate, which is a concrete watch brand. We ended up doing a crowdfunding campaign, Kickstarter, and all these things, all this experience that I gained from working at a consultancy, working at a startup, working in-house where I'm hiring consultancies, it all just came into play. Okay, let's pull some people that I used to work with that understood marketing. So I pulled the ex-head of global marketing for Solar Republic. She came and she helped launch our campaign for Aggregate. Called up old friends, manufacturing to consult and maybe give some tips on stuff. Ended up going to China with my partner, figuring out how to build these watches. And we're like, great, this is awesome. And we raised, I think, $65,000. It wasn't really much on the campaign. And when you're living in Silicon Valley, that's really not much. And so with a kid on the way, all this cost of living in the South Bay, particularly, you're like, huh, this is not necessarily going to work the way I thought it was. And so on the outside, everyone's oh, wow, you guys got funded. You're, you're ordering these watches. Meanwhile, I had downsides. My wife and I had moved into this very tiny apartment next to college kids who smoke pot every day with a baby on the way. Just giving you context. Like the situation is starting to feel real. When I had my old job, we're in this nice swanky apartment and to have to downsize and and get real and just be like, okay, I only have this much left in my bank account, right? Things just started to get real. And we're like, okay, the watches are ordered. We owe all these people, these watches that they gave us money for. What do we do? Because now we can't pay for basic needs like rent. What do we do? My partner and I were like, we can't really go back and do industrial design. And he's a mechanical engineer. We can't Mm. do engineering work because that takes too long. If we do that, we're not going to be able to handle all this watch manufacturing stuff we need to do. I was creatively thinking we could be Uber drivers or DoorDashers. DoorDash is a food delivery service. That at least gives us time to just do that on graveyard shift and make at least some basic income to slow down the burn rate. So that's what we did. We signed up for DoorDash and we were dashers. We had the red shirts and everything. We were delivering food at the same time as having conference calls with China with manufacturing. It wasn't much money. I think we're getting barely six or seven dollars an hour, which was better than zero. It basically just slowed down the bank account dwindling. And that definitely wasn't sustainable. My partner and I, after we finally got the watches overseas back to America and ship them out. We're like, okay, cool. We fulfilled our promise. No one's going to sue us. We got to make some money now because I have a kid. I have to do something. And we both just agreed. Let's just both freelance on the site. We make our own money and we'll work on this as a side gig. Aggregate was an e-commerce brand. It was put up and I started to just look for work and we started looking for work and not very successful. I was just asking friends and stuff. Hey, do you know anyone looking freelance designers? I had a few friends who who ran some firms, so I did freelance for them for a little bit, which was great and really appreciative of that. But it still just wasn't enough to make ends meet where we're living in with a child. Me and Mike were like, we got to figure out something. So we just started networking. We went to some trade shows. I think at one of these trade shows, for whatever reason, we were just watching some seminar, some panel, and someone tapped me on the shoulder. I turned around and it was actually an old client way back several years ago, working for another company. Obviously not a client anymore to that company. 
was like, hey, I saw on LinkedIn, you're doing this watch thing. And I was like, I am, but I'm actually also a consultant. And then I was like, do you know anyone? And they're like, actually, we are. We're looking for industrial design and mechanical engineering. My partner was sitting right next to me. So I was like, I have someone I can introduce you to, mechanical engineer. Funny enough, almost serendipitously, that client, who I actually knew really well, because previously, several years ago, I worked pretty closely with him, an account. He became one of our very first clients, where both Mike, my partner, and myself, we were basically independent freelancers working for them, doing ID and ME. And that just snowballed into another. The next project was a referral from my brother's friend, and that became the real project where we're like, okay... I think we need to hire some people now. The rest is history. We basically became accidental agency owners. And so that's when we created Hatch2O. It sounds like things can really turn around quite quickly when you connect with the right people. Absolutely. And they can turn around quite quickly from going from really bad to really good and, and vice versa too. So yeah. yeah, absolutely. And was there a strategy that you formulated to find a consistent income, a consistent set of clients once you had those first two break-ins? Yeah, great question. Not in the beginning. So when we had found those first clients, I think it was in 2017. It was actually before Hatchduo was actually created. This was still aggregate-ish of supplementing income. And we're like, man, we need to figure something out. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to save some, we're going to, we're going to get the next job somehow through referral, asking a bunch of friends. And the next big job we get, we're going to use all that money to hire someone to help us with business development. That job came, the money that we had was still not enough. But what we did do is I started to hire an intern. And so just like the thought of going from myself and my partner to, okay, how can I put more time into just looking for leads. And no one had taught me this, right? Even the previous consultancies I worked, they're not going to teach me how to write proposals or any of that stuff. They just don't mm. do that when, when you're a junior. And so I actually did just, even when you're a senior, sometimes they don't even do it. But yeah, so I just did a lot of personal research myself of how to write a proposal. And this was before ChatGPT and AI, right? This is like, how do you write a proposal? I would YouTube stuff. I found a really cool uh, channel, The Future by Chris Stowe. Definitely got a credit him. He totally changed my perspective on how do you sell creative services? How do you sell it properly? How do you look for leads? And yeah, I think like downloading a lot of that knowledge, slowly but surely from 2017 to 2018, we incorporated. I hired our first intern, then senior designer. And then the next hire we made was actually April, who's still with us today, our business development. And she was basically the first hire. She was a software salesperson really lucky that she applied to our job opening. And I was like, cool, you understand sales? That's what we need. And so the minute she was put in, uh, she really just helped change and systemize the business in terms of just client relationship management, what we call CRM. And these are all things that they don't teach you in design school, right? This is really business related stuff. And it's, oh, you realize you can't just be good at design and hope that everyone's just going to come to your doorstep and pay you for it. You really got to have a pipeline. That's the, the term that we use in terms of just leads coming in and going out there, going to trade shows, going and talking to people, going to network, and then just having that funnel continuously going and making sure that the right types of clients too. Because the thing I'll share with you guys is in the beginning, we weren't charging what we should have been charging. But at the time I was like, great, this is, I think Mike and I used to do stuff for, I don't know, $6,000, 6,000 US dollars. And at the time when it was just two of us, we were like, cool, we actually got something. And mm -hmm. we just slowly realized that is nowhere near enough to, one, pay for yourself, feed yourself, but then also just hire and scale the business. And so, yeah, we just, we definitely had a lot of, I wouldn't say we even knew how to figure, thing, figure things out. We just did it by trial and error. And through just sheer grit and force, we figure stuff out. Yeah, I feel like similar to how you said that no one really teaches you how to do a job proposal, there's this really big shroud of mystery around what everyone charges for their services and how you should be structuring that. Yeah. So it's really interesting to hear you say it. Yeah. And it's weird too, because I think this is a perfect place to say it. The minute people know you become their competition, they're less likely to even help you. And yeah, yeah, that's, something I, that's something I learned too. The minute we incorporated as Hatch Duo, when I was door dashing, everyone's like, dude, you need a job referral? I'll help like, you. Suddenly but everyone's doing you a favor. They're feeling good about themselves. Yeah, and then they're like, yeah. hold on a second. Like, now you're taking money term? out of my pocket. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like tell so, me yeah. your threat. Yeah. And it's, you try to ask for advice and this is not, this doesn't go for everyone, but this is like something that I experienced. It's like you ask for, Hey, how do you write a proposal? How would I do this? And it's very vague or almost, Oh, I'll, I'll get you that answer, but Sorry, but yeah, I'll get, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry, I've just been really busy. Yeah, and it, and it's hard too because for industrial design, there's graphic design proposals online, templates that for industrial design, it's actually there's nothing really on the web easily findable that 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 really teaches you that. And so I really had to do a lot of digging myself and trial and error, and had a lot of early prospect clients laugh at my proposals to just be like. Are you sure that's enough? I was like, oh, I guess I should be charging way more. It's hard, you know? right? On one hand, you're feeling uncomfortable because you're proposing yeah. a large sum of money. And then the other hand, they're looking for reassurance that you've got what it takes to produce this important product for them. And sometimes a hefty fee comes with that sort of rest assured feeling that we're in the right hands. Absolutely. Absolutely. I also feel there's this really big discrepancy between people who are maybe in your position at the beginning where you're not charging what you should be because you don't know yet compared to the people who are charging these massive amounts. And then you can still go to a meeting and someone's like, you're not going to do it for free until we start making money. Like what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. absolute polar opposite. Don't you, aren't you doing this for the passion? Yeah. 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 And I would definitely come across a lot of those as well. Right. Like just, Oh, you're a new business. And it's crazy. It's sometimes this comes from big companies too. They're like, Oh, but the exposure we're going to get you. We have, 15 other companies lined up at our door that are way bigger than you guys. You guys would be lucky to have this. And you just soon realize that you just have to know your worth and charge what you need to charge and everything will be okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You can't blame someone for trying to get something for free. Oh yeah. Yeah. Hey everyone. This episode is sponsored by PCBWay, the go-to destination for printed circuit board prototyping, low volume production and PCB assembly. If your team is working on electronics and you're in need of prototype PCBs, I can't recommend PCBWay enough. You can get a quote instantly, even if your circuit board schematics are not finished yet. They can also help you with injection molded, 3D printed, sheet metal or vacuum cast prototypes. PCBWay is the circuit board prototyper of choice for companies like Samsung, Siemens, Honeywell, Tesla and Apple. But you don't have to be a big company to use their services. I've personally used their service to instantly get quotes and have prototype PCBs delivered in a timely manner. On top of all that, PCBWay is so excited to be working with us, they're offering a special discount just for our listeners. When you get a quote from PCBWay, be sure to use our promo code REDACTED, 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 redacted. for a special discount on us. You can find PCBWay in our episode description or go to PCBWay.com. Did you have a, a set rule internally where you're like, if I'm going to work 40 hours a week, I need to spend eight hours a week developing the business? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if it was initially, at least, I don't know if it was really that delineated. I knew that when my daughter was born, my wife had to hold down the fort. And so for me, it's like I had to get a maximum amount of ROI on my time while watching my baby at the same time. I was a working stay-at-home dad at the same time until my wife would come home. So I would say it was pretty efficient in terms of, I would just hit up everyone I knew on LinkedIn. Hey, I started this thing called Hatch Duo. Do you know anyone who might be looking for design services? I would even hit up other design consultancies that were bigger and be like, hey, if things are too small for you. Feel free to send it our way if it's too small for you. That's actually a really good tip that we haven't heard before because I feel work in the consultancies like up and down and maybe they don't necessarily want to take on contractors right now. So that probably is a good way to source some work, especially if you have a good relationship with the consultancies already. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely a, a way I would recommend is forming kind of business relationships with other, maybe not if they're directly competing with you, but maybe they're a little bigger than you or they're a little smaller than you, then you can, for the smaller ones, you can say, hey, if it's too small for us, we can refer. And then for the bigger ones, it's like, if it's too small for you, feel free to send them to us. I feel like that those kinds of relationships definitely have worked. To answer Fraser's question, no, it was very disorganized and super crazy and reactive very early on. I would say right around 2019, we started to figure our shit out. We need to have an annual meeting, guys. We need to set up systems. We need to hire these kinds of people and we need to set these kinds of guardrails so that 
we have this kind of pipeline and this kind of budget to work with. I think in 2020, which was actually the pandemic year, was one of our best. That was our breakout year. That was the first year we actually hit, broke through well over seven figures. Congratulations. I think that had to do with the rise in pandemic babies. Um, could be that too. Who, who knows? Or be pandemic money. <laughs> it, may, maybe it's pandemic money too. I do know that just there's a fundamental shift though in how we did things too. We started to hire... I would say higher quality folks, because you know, beginning when you start, not that you're not getting quality folks, but it's it's harder to attract talent when you're not the big names. And it's it's only when people start to figure out who you are that you start to just get more of a funnel of talent that's coming in and and people that have that kind of experience too to help you grow. So I think that was definitely pivotal for us in that year. So you talked about it was a bit chaotic in terms of having business development planning at the start, and now you have a bit more of a structure. Could you go a bit into what does that current business development structure look like at Hatch2O? Sure. So for us, we have obviously our industrial design team, our mechanical engineering team, two different service departments, but we also have what I would call our ops team, and that's divided into two different categories. We have the sales department, which has our two business development members of our team, and then we have our marketing department which a lot of the social media and YouTube content that you see from us, that kind of comes out from that department. Those two are intermingled in the sense that we have a, a goal of being positioned for visibility. And I think that's a very important thing. And so we always try to start off every annual year with a campaign to what kind of channels are we going to be visible in? And those could be as simple as we want to be visible on YouTube. We want to be visible on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on Facebook, on the web, direct, etc. And then we see those as our inbound or lead magnet. And I'm using a lot of weird mumbo jumbo sales terms here, but that's just how we talk about it with my sales team. And then we have an outbound strategy. So inbound is stuff that comes in. These are people that we don't even know they're going to come in. We just have a storefront, right? That's our website. We have these different channels of Instagram, YouTube, et cetera, where people can find us. That's our inbound. And then our outbound strategy is really going out cold, going to trade shows, reaching out to people that companies that we think we would be a good fit for. And that's what my team, my outbound team does. April, who's in charge of our partnerships and Emmanuel right now, they basically, they have their own black book of relationships, which is good, but then they basically go and tap those networks and try to bring in business that way. And I'm saying this because it's not magical. It's not, I know we're good, but it's not, it doesn't matter how good you are. You really have to put in the work business-wise to really get that revenue to that level. And I think that was the difference, right? Before we broke seven figures, it was like, hey, we're winning design awards and stuff, but we weren't pushing that hard in terms of that, those strategies. Yeah. It sounds like there's a process to it, almost like the design process. If you go through those steps, you're going to get a better outcome at each step of the way. So it makes sense that being able to sell yourself and put the agency forward, there's almost, not saying there's a predetermined way, almost similar to the design process, there's steps and you can mm -hmm. change them and add different things, but it sounds really yeah. similar. Yeah, it's very similar to that, right? Year over year, we're almost iterating, right? The same way we sketch concepts and we're iterating from phase to phase. Each year, we're refining our process, our sales material, our pamphlets that we send out. For us, we send out PDF documents of our portfolio, of our services, our process, how we go about you know, doing what we do in our particular way. And each year, we're tweaking that because we're like, oh, we're getting customer feedback that they like this or they don't like that. And so we're tweaking all that stuff. Yeah, or we change something and now we're bringing in a completely different audience and maybe that's the audience we're interested in. Exactly. So here's the thing for us, admittedly, we don't spend much time on research. And here's the reason why. We actually target a lot of startups. A lot of startups already, they're working on novel emerging tech. They're already very deeply ingrained in their research and technology. That's why they even got their funding to begin with. Why should we be egotistical thinking that we're going to be able to research more than they've already done, right? And so we got a lot of, early on, we tried to do research, right? We tried to do follow very, very stereotypical, like, okay, let's do some design research, let's go through this. And through a lot of feedback, we just realized, oh, at least in the market that we're in, they don't need this. Let's cut this out. And the minute we cut that out, we were able to just make more margin. The clients were happier. The engagements were shorter. And ultimately, we could see the products out in the market faster. So a little bit different maybe than the stereotypical way of doing things, but just getting that customer feedback and iterating very similar to the design process. I wonder if that was almost a way of identifying yourself in the market of having put in the hard yards and understanding the market more as well. Yeah. 
I wonder if that was a little secret signal to people. Oh, these guys know what they're talking about. They know that we've spent years researching our market audience, where we're going to sit in the market. So they know they don't need to do that. I'm not sure. I don't know if that, I don't know if we maybe came about that conclusion serendipitously, accidentally almost, but I think, yeah, once we understood that, it's related back to us when we started Aggregate. No one's going to tell us how to make a concrete watch. That was crazy difficult. And no designer engineer is really going to come in and tell us how to do it better. And so empathizing on those, on that route of being a founder ourselves, I think, yeah, just understanding that then we're able to cater to our customers better. It certainly sounds you've done the almost IDEO style business design, but you yourself are the client <laughs> over and over again. That's a good segue into our, our, our next line. I think you've done all these achievements, but what were your biggest struggles in running this consultancy? Oh man, where do I start? And here's the thing. We still feel like we're just at the tip of the iceberg for us. I know we're about five years in, but I feel like we're just getting started. But man, to get to this point, there are so many struggles. And I think a lot of it is just, you go to design school and you understand how to be a good designer. You go through, you're working as a designer and you see the employee part of it, of design. But to actually understand what it is to scale an organization, that's a completely different thing. There's one thing to be self-employed, that, that's freelancing, right? That's different. But to systemize something that can work without you, that was that has been by far the most difficult part. And I'll give you some examples. There's points in time where we lose critical people because young designers, they want to move on and go to bigger names and things like that. And you get really used to the output. You get really used to the quality of output. And when you're a large organization and you have to replace one person, it's not that big of a deal. When you're under 10 people and a star designer leaves or has to leave, it's, man, you feel like, what am I going to tell the client? Is the client going to be upset? All that kind of stuff. And so Will I follow the employee? Yeah. And man, I have some other stories too, that yeah, basically understanding people, understanding how you're trying to build this thing that supposedly is a machine, but people are involved. And I think that's been the most difficult part is I've made mistakes where, you know, I maybe probably could have handled things better from an interpersonal level. I think where I am now, I've gained a lot more business maturity to handle things with a lot more sensitivity and fairness. Whereas when I was first building the business, there's definitely a lot of situations where I burned a lot of bridges because in context, I was in the state where I was door dashing. I didn't know where the next paycheck was going to come from. I need this to work. I don't care what I have to do to make this work. And if you're in my way, you got to get out of the way. I don't want to get anyone in trouble here, but yeah, there's been a lot of br bridges burned. I think that has been the biggest learnings and things I wish I maybe could have done a little bit differently in terms of interpersonal relationships that maybe have soured along the way. I think that's a really interesting point as well, though, going back to university and what they teach you and what they don't. I know when I went through, there was a really big emphasis on these group products, group projects, because you're always going to be working in a group. And I don't know about everyone else, my groups always seem to crash and burn. And then there was never any follow-up. Wasn't These are the things we thought you guys did well. This is what we noticed that we thought if you implemented this kind of communication would have helped you or did anybody have this issue? Does anyone have any solutions of how they overcame it? It just felt like you were continuously getting put in these situations, failing, then dreading getting put back into a group. And that was one of the things I learned when I first went into the professional world was like, oh my God, it's like <laughs> a normal group project at uni, but mm -hmm, everyone is mm -hmm. an MVP. Everyone's here to actually work. You still get power struggles and knuckle draggers and in real projects in the mm -hmm. workplace. It's more a case of, because you're getting paid, everyone has a reason to actually be there and rock up. Mm. Uh, and equally so, there's less, I certainly know the worst group projects I had back then were the ones where they were, we were all high flyers. And instead mm -hmm. of creating a cohesive mm -hmm. group and producing a really good project, <laughs> it ended up being a, a vision and a power struggle. But that's even more interesting, right? We all know that if you're not a good industrial designer, you're not going to make that next step into the profession. It's so competitive. It's so hard to get those jobs yeah. that you're going to be in a team generally with these high-flying, great designers. Mm -hmm. I think it just makes those interpersonal skills even more important. Or even when you are working on a, a real professional team and you're trying to tell someone who's got 10 years of experience plus that they're wrong and that's a difficult position to be in because you sit there and you're like the project's going to fail and the client's going to lose a bunch of money and it's not going to make me look particularly yeah. good please fix yeah. this 
and they don't <laughs> want to because um, they don't want to admit failure. Yeah, definitely not. I've, I've had situations where I've had to debate someone 20 years of my tenure because it's my business at that point. And I hired them obviously for their experience, but sometimes when something needs to be a certain direction and those conversations aren't always comfortable because of the context of what seemingly you're like, wait, you're supposed to know more than me, that kind of thing. So yeah, definitely that, that power struggle is is an interesting dynamic. Have you seen any designosaurs in the wild? Designosaurs in the wild? Recently, yeah. There's a lot of AI haters out there. So <laughs> And that's so interesting. I don't know where people think creativity comes from. It doesn't exist in a vacuum with nothing else. Yeah. We're one of the most creative professions on the planet. And yet you have still more, I don't want to overgeneralize and say all old school designers, but a lot of them are DMing me on LinkedIn saying things like, and I'll quote you on this, you're ruining the industry by posting this stuff. Stop it. You're ruining it for all of us. And and these are from people that I used to look up to, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's really yeah. disappointing. I will say my biggest complaint with AI is not whether the tool is useful or not. It's the fact that it's going to equip a lot of potential clients with the notion that they can do good design on their own. Yeah, yeah. Same thing that MS Paint did to graphic design. I agree. I think that's definitely a concern. That's definitely something we're aware of as well. And I think all you can do is you can be as adaptable as you can be and have a learning mentality to try to evolve quicker than that situation will, right? Because I think it will be chaos when the time comes. I was having a conversation with a, a friend factories are starting to say, oh, we can do industrial design for you because we can use mid-journey. I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. And you think about it, man, at first top level, how do you defend yourself against that? But once you realize, oh, hold on a second, the context in which a manufacturer thinks about design versus in a front-end industrial designer, two completely different focuses. One is on costing and efficiency. They're not thinking about the user. So it doesn't matter what they're, what tool they're using. The output's going to be completely different than, say, an industrial designer on the front-end who's very connected to user needs. Cultural things as well in terms of taste and market. That sure. In my experience, a lot of the time when we use over overseas manufacturers, they just don't quite have their finger on the pulse as much or they're on a yeah. different pulse oh. so incredibly technical in and amazing in every other way it's just maybe they're not making things in the style that's current right now or <laughs> there's a different current style where they are absolutely like the value of critiquing not critiquing but curating the design if you're a potential client listening in the manufacturer is going to treat design as an afterthought exactly and if you're a client listening in just key shot can be used by anyone you're not going to be able to render the same way as an industrial designer would so same for goes for an ai tool right totally i think an interesting analogy i have been in a job and they were telling me about a product that got manufactured in their factory and they put the injection molding gate right in the middle of the product on the front edge, maybe that was the most efficient way for filling the mold, or maybe yeah. it stopped some sort of deform. Maybe it was right. the obvious place, but from a cultural context of how we yeah. appreciate products in the West where we live, we would not want that mold line. We wouldn't right. want the gate to be seen where that's exactly. not an issue for them because it's making their job a little bit easier in the process. And exactly. I feel like that's what mid journey is going to do. They're going to be like, oh, that's perfect. We'll put it there. Yeah. Yeah. So I use Mid Journey all the time. I love it. I love it. It's like an inspiration, but I feel it's so important to have that kind of mindset of, is this actually going to work? Yeah. Which you need, need the industrial designer there that the client can't understand mm -hmm. or generally wouldn't. What's that old Picasso quote? He does a drawing in five minutes and he says, it didn't take me five minutes. It took me my whole life. Mm. Exactly. To some extent, all of us in design school, we are we are downloading and learning. We're like little pattern recognition machines ourselves. Yeah, we're learning and it's somehow getting infiltrated into our brain and our creativity to then output something similar, right? Like if we want to do mid-century modern, right? You're studying that stuff over and over so that you understand and recognize what those proportions and what that look would be. And then you output that. It's hard to say because you. it's hard to analyze our own brain to say, did we actually just copy? something else. And it's, I totally get it. I think it's a huge topic. I think there's both sides of the fence, very polarizing sides, so to speak, on both sides. And 
As far as Hatch Duo goes, for us, we just see it as a, a tool for enhancing creativity. If you're not creative, it's not going to do anything for you. But for us, if you're like, like Fraser said, if you are like Picasso and you spent 20 you know, decades honing your craft, then when you add AI on top of that, you just become basically a supercharged human at that point. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm interested in the idea of people being able to collect their own training data of their own taste and their own styles to incorporate into like these AI rendering machines as well. I use Pinterest, but the AI was made by my mom and dad. So, <laughs> Oh, instead of Pinterest, you guys could try out our newest venture mood, which is a AI mood board generator for any kind of inspiration that you guys mm. might want to use. Ooh. Shameless, shameless. Is, plug, this, uh, but... is this pre-access? Or is uh, it yeah, live you can, it's beta access right now, and I'm happy to give that to you. But so oh, this is actually exciting. created by Hatch Duo. So, you know, we do the industrial design and engineering for other companies. And again, I'm always learning. I'm like, oh, there's this thing called a venture studio model. You could create something from within and then launch it yourself. And so that's what we did. That's really cool. You guys feel free to try it. I would love that. You'll have to hook me up. Yeah. Do you mind if we have the, the beta sign up in the show notes? No, not at all. You guys can, we'd love, we'd love for people to sign up. For you heard it here. Check the show notes for signups. Moving on from that, what is the Hatch Duo design process now? And why do you do it that way? Yeah. So the Hatch Duo ethos is really to, we want to influence the world through design and engineering. And the duo part is really Mike and myself, that was the two guys who started this thing, right? And so he's an engineer, I'm an industrial designer. And at the core, I used to work strictly for only an industrial design agency. And I started to realize, oh, whenever we're developing products and stuff, you still need to hire out, outsource that engineering in. And so why not have it in-house to shortcut a lot of that back and forth of, oh, it's not going to work that way. Oh, God, you guys made it ugly. And have all those disputes and back and forth and push and pull in-house. And that was the, I guess, the ground ethos of it is let's have both industrial design and mechanical engineering so that we could have a holistic product development process. And so we target startups, early stage startups predominantly because very challenging and they need to get to market quickly and they need to get funding and things of that nature. And so there's a lot of risk involved. And for us, we like those kinds of challenges. We like hard challenges. We like taking risk. And the hatch part is really, the, the word hatch is really, it's about startups, right? And so we actually sometimes take equity in the, the startups that we serve. And I think that's always been a model for us from the get-go because we ourselves are founders and it's worked really well for us to not only attract what I would say, the types of clients that we want. I like working directly with founders. I like being able to text them and talk to them and not work through a bureaucracy layer of folks. And that kind of goes to our process too. And they're excited, right? They're excited about their product yeah. and they're really passionate. They're not just some random CEO that's taken over. Yeah. And, and our process is very like intimate as well, right? We, during the pandemic, we had to do everything through Slack and all that, but we create Slack channels for our clients. We, they're seeing stuff as we put it out there and it's not just like, here it all is in a silver platter. Do you like it? It's not like that. We're very collaborative and especially we're working on really crazy stuff we work on lidar drones smart sex toys measuring erectile like, yeah. things at <laughs> night or surgical devices you, you name it right these are not simple technology things and so there's a lot of back and forth in, in terms of just not only making the engineering function properly but making the the aesthetics look just as good as it works and so that's our ethos is just making sure we take a holistic approach right from the get-go and to move through it quickly, especially for startups. Do you have an in-house visual style or do you just try and adapt on the fly for whoever? Or is it a mix of both? I, I think in terms of our in-house style, we, a lot of people have asked me this and I don't know that we consciously always try to imprint our style on something because we're a consultancy and I always feel like design should be in the service of the brand mm -hmm. and every brand is different, right? So for us to put our stamp of signature look or feel to me is more of an art artist approach and that's not what we are we're designers at the end of the day we're problem solvers and for us what i have noticed is when the opportunity does arise we take a biomimicry anamorphic approach when we can so for instance credo was a smart leaf iot plant sensor 
And we saw opportunities where we needed to have light indication happen for when it's on and stuff. But we made it in the shape of a leaf where the boss, the plastic bosses were in the shape of a leaf. So when it shined through, you get this leaf thing. We did a drone where it was a LiDAR drone where it was inspecting military aircraft and commercial aircraft. And the founder kept saying he was really inspired by dragonflies and wanted that kind of involved. And this, there's not always a case where you can just like, hey, I want to do something based on this animal. But that was a very appropriate time to do it. And so a lot of the, the lattice structure we did for the propeller guards was mm. based on looking at the lens of, if you're looking at the wings under a microscope, you see a lot of this lattice structure. And that actually helped lighten the weight functionally as well. So I don't know that we necessarily have a, a style. We just try to... We try to do what's appropriate for the brand, and we do it in a way where we hope that it looks as good as it functions. I think it's interesting as well. You mentioned about taking your clients on this journey, and I've worked for companies that are really, we're keeping everything inside. We're going to present to you this golden idea, and it has come out of a vacuum, and it was struck by genius. This is our one proposal. And I've also worked at places where it's like, oh, these are the ideas we're at. Is this kind of where you see it going? And it's like a choose your own adventure with the client. And I feel like it almost brings in that IKEA model where people are more invested because they've built it themselves. They feel like they've been on this journey. You're not having to explain to them, oh, we have to make this decision because of this crucial element that we had not expected or something like that. I feel yeah. like often it can actually bring people on board a lot easier. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point, right? Especially when you are thinking about the business side of design. It's really, you know, we're very user-centric, right, as designers. But as a business owner, you think about the customer experience. Don't you think they want to be the hero of the story, right? They want to be Batman and you want to be Robin as a service provider, right? People also forget is the people in these companies, they sit through these boring meetings constantly the design of their newest product is probably part of the most exciting part of their week yeah this is the future this is fun they want to be a part of it yeah and i think that's what we see design is a fun thing especially when you're getting founders involved and they're just like man through you they're able to design now obviously there's a fine line you don't want to be their hands and their pen right you don't want to just do whatever you want to do it with a consultative nature but I, i really like to think of it as like robin right where they're a sidekick We're there to make the objective at the end of the day is to make sure we're hitting their business goals and making them feel like they're the hero in their own story. And so I think that's really the approach most consultants should take when they're in the service industry. That's a good point of not falling into this trap of being someone's hands and someone's pen. I do sometimes think that a lot of consultancies fall into this trap where they think they're selling design and engineering services and drafting services, but really they're selling culture and they're selling a bit of a dream. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or if I want to be a a bit more flamboyant, they're selling a bit of design romance. Yeah. Absolutely. And IP. You're not necessarily selling your technical drawing. You're selling the IP inside the drawing. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us how developing mood has influenced your process within Hatch Duo? So I don't know that mood mood has influenced how we have done things design-wise process at Hatch Duo, but I can tell you Mood was created out of influence of looking at what was going on mm-hmm. process-wise in Hatch Duo. And as a small design studio startup, we're constantly on the lookout for new talent. There's fast-paced projects coming in, and sometimes you have to staff up quickly, and sometimes that staff up is fresh grads out of school. Sometimes for us, they happen to be global as well. So they're not always uh, stateside trained. And so sometimes there's some cultural differences in terms of interpretation of what branding attribute words may mean, right? And when you're making mood boards. And so my team and I, we started to notice a pretty consistent obstacle in terms of just turnaround time of... So part of our process before we do anything is we really like to align on the visual branding of what the form language should be before we jump into actual design. And we do that a lot through mood boarding and stylescaping, et cetera. So a lot of image aggregation and heavy part of our process. But what we were finding was a lot of juniors were taking a ridiculous amount of time doing it to the point where I was getting frustrated. I was like, why is this taking you guys four or five hours to do a mood board? It shouldn't take that long. At least when I was doing mood boards back in my day, it was not, it didn't take that long. But What you start to realize is when we have asynchronous teams, especially working remotely, and you're not necessarily 
in person together to figure out those nuances very quickly. These people are trying to figure out stuff by themselves and rightfully so based on the context of what they know. And so we needed to find a way to quickly unify and just get through that process faster. And what we found was we're like, okay, AI is becoming big. This was a year ago. AI is becoming big. How can we tackle some low-hanging fruit within our own processes and utilize AI to solve some of these bottlenecks for us? And so we're like, okay, let's visual mood boarding and branding. That seems like something where we're spending on average four to five hours more than we should for junior designers, at least. Mm -hmm. And so when you actually measure the economics of that, and as a business owner, you're like, man, I could save a lot more money doing that. And when you're running a business, that's the things that you're thinking about. So yeah, we ended up a year ago starting Mood AI, which is a venture to basically transform the problem of searching, sorting, and synthesizing mood boards using artificial intelligence algorithms to do. And so that's what we created. And we now have a beta system set up and my team has been using it. And so to your question about how has it influenced our process, I would say it's sped us up about 97% on that front end phase of the process, where now those junior designers, when they're going about doing those parts, man, it's taking minutes just to do. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, does that mean that the client pays less? That's no, not necessarily, because now we get to spend more time focusing on what we should be, which is stuff that AI cannot do, which is add uh, model making, rough prototyping, going through more iterations of exhaustive ergonomics, things of that, which take a lot more time, which frankly, with certain kinds of budgets, you're not able to go through all of that as much because you're regulated to fit it all in within a very constrained amount of time. And so it's really opened up the door for us to, I would say, do better work more efficiently, faster, without losing any kind of quality. Um, and has so, there, yeah. Has say, there been any negatives, at least when the system was first starting up, when you tried to run a, an AI mood board? Were you finding stuff was originally a bit more homogenous? Are you finding things get stuck in the echo chamber? <laughs> like um, the Pinterest echo chamber of minimalist, like, yeah. rounded rectangles? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And I think we've only been using it for about four months now, mm. four to five months now. I think only time will tell. The thing is, the algorithm is trained on Hatch Duo. So all my mm -hmm. designers actually train the algorithm. So what it is popping out is actually how we like to think anyway. So maybe it's almost it's like we've done it. intentionally echo chambered. Yeah, maybe it's echo chambered just for us. And maybe we need to, obviously, this is something we want to scale so that interior designers, motion graphic designers, et cetera, they can all use it too. But for industrial oh, designers... This is also a very complex problem. I don't necessarily expect you to have solved it. Yeah. No, but I think you bring up a good point is that for our MVP, yeah, I do think it's very echo chambered to industrial designers. It's really tuned. We have designers from Kohler and Ford and stuff using it. And they're like, oh, this is awesome. Oh, but uh, these are all industrial designers. But mm. but you, t you bring in uh, maybe an interior designer. Why are there all these cars? <laughs> <laughs> What's been your biggest failure to date and what lesson did you learn from it? I think professionally, my biggest regret, I wouldn't say necessarily a failure, and my partner would agree, is one of our very first clients came to us, and this was still very early on, and they're like, hey, so we're a startup, and we're, we're about to raise our Series A, but we're shorter on cash. Would you guys mind just willing to take equity instead of cash? And of course, at the time, because of what we needed, we're like, no, we need the cash. We'll just take the cash. That startup went on to raise... $11.5 million in Series A and another $50 million in Series B. So I think if I were to, yeah, basically you can just think about, you can imagine doing the math on had we taken equity instead of the money part of it, we probably probably have someone else running how to do it right now. Yeah, but sometimes things are serendipitous like that as well. And at the time that you spoke about starting Hatch Duo, it really sounds like you were so spread thin that... It really wasn't an option. And for every startup that succeeds, there's a dozen more corpses on the... Oh, on yeah, there's a dozen more corpses. It sounds like you made the right decision at the time for you. Yeah, I think at the time it was the right decision. But yeah, that was probably one of the things we always like, ah, oh, we missed that one. Yeah, if I could just go back and door dash yeah. a little bit harder. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. in terms of failure, I feel like, man, this is going to sound cliche, but we fail on a daily weekly basis we're constantly making big mistakes and each time here's the thing right as our company is getting better and growing those mistakes become bigger and more catastrophic uh, each time 
like I hate to say lessons, right? Yeah, it's in the beginning you think you're making a mistake and you're like, oh, it's the worst thing. And you look back on it now and you're like, that was nothing. It's just preparing you so that you could deal with these kinds of scales and mistakes. And then each time there's just another level to it. As as much the good parts of it get better and scale, so do the the kind of the other end of the coin. When you're making mistakes at that scale, it becomes much worse too. So I think we're just constantly learning. I don't really see them as failure as much as as an entrepreneur, you're always going to be making mistakes and learning. And that's just part of it. And you're not going to learn that from going to business school and reading it from a book. You have to be in the trenches to be able to do it. It's all about how you roll with the punches that really establish you. Exactly. Exactly. Also, this concept of intelligent failure, which is failure that if you had have done a whole bunch of research and been like, this is the outcome that I'm going for, it wouldn't have been obvious that the, there was going to be a failure. So you're almost pushing yourself forward. You're experimenting, you're learning new things. And apparently they take that a lot from the scientific community because when they run an experiment, it doesn't succeed. It's not seen as this negative failure. It's just pushing knowledge further. Yeah. That all being said, though, it's as an entrepreneur that at any day it could end, right? I think mm. like we're doing well, but it's sometimes the decisions that we're making, they're really stressful because if you're wrong and you're placing that bit and you're wrong, you could tank the company as a startup. And so my partner and I, we're dealing with that all the time. And so that's maybe the stuff that people don't always see is that, man, it's a lot of stress understanding that you're in charge of all these people with families, people that need to put food on the table for their other, their kids too. And you're making decisions on placing bets on AI or these kinds of ventures, and you're hoping that it plays out. And if it doesn't, you, you spent all this money. And, and you get over that back, like, right? like, decision paralysis. I suffer from that a lot. Man, that's a good question. I tend to just have a sense of urgency. So I tend to make actually very quick, decisive decisions with as much data as I need. I rarely have 100% of all the data that I need. And, and maybe that's admitting a little too much here, but I think most entrepreneurs, if they're listening, they would understand that you got to make decisions quickly because when you're not when you're not making decisions, then basically you're dying at that point. Yeah, that's really interesting. Almost trusting your gut. Yeah. And we've got a fun question that we usually close out with now. So far into your career, what's been your favorite product that you've purchased for under $100? Under $100. Oh. What brings you joy? In my professional career? It, just it, like, it could be anything. Just, it just like, it could have been a pack joy. of cards last week. Like, yeah. It could be the best milkshake you've ever drunk. It has to channel like Mary Kondo oh, oh, energy. Okay. Okay. This... <laughs> This might be coin. I bought $100 worth of Bitcoin <laughs> way back. How much did you make? Can I ask? How much did you lose? I lost a lot too, but it was before, it was way back when, I think it was the third time it tanked and everyone was like, oh, it's never coming back up. And then I think a few of my investor friends were just like, hey, you should buy this thing called Bitcoin. So I was like, okay, a hundred bucks. Let's buy some. And yeah, didn't do too bad. I love it. My ex-boyfriend, his friend bought a bunch of Bitcoin when it was less than the cost of a pizza and he stored it on an old Mo Motorola flip phone and then the whole hard drive corrupted and oh. he's lost billions of dollars because he has oh, no access to it and there's no way of bringing it back. It's got to the stage where it's a ridiculous amount, but as you said, it was all paper gains, so it was never really his in the first place. <laughs> I mean, it's affected him zilch. And Lucy doesn't have to pay capital gains on it. Oh, yeah. Wait, does that fit within your rules though? Because it's not a physical. That wasn't yeah. a physical product. If you have a second answer, we'll take it. A lightsaber. <laughs> I collect. I collect a lot of that stuff. To really close it out in a circular. Yeah, lightsaber would be it. Did you get it at Disneyland or uh, when no, you're it was inspiration? It... Do you pull it out and you're like? <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was actually a resell of Darth Vader's replica, the movie replica one. So it was a resell. So it was a little discounted. So you didn't even go for the Kylo Ren, Mark Newson three-way saber vibe uh, oh, i have that one but that yeah, i have that one that was gifted though so i didn't pay okay. i didn't pay yeah. that one myself so. so you're into red lightsabers should we be worried uh, i don't know i did say that i regret my interpersonal uh, relationships <laughs> or stuff, right? so so we know we know what side of the force you're on yeah <laughs> and what harry potter house you're in oh yeah definitely slytherin for sure yeah oh, me too okay all right yeah. no, I mean, i'll yeah. just i'll just slowly slink away <laughs> <laughs> all right before you destroy a whole bunch of government property and take hundreds of thousands of lives with us thanks for coming onto the show john it was a, <laughs> it was a lot of fun 
And for anyone listening in, please check the show notes. Please check the show notes because we have lots of little links in there, including the sign up to Mood AI, John's AI startup. Thanks so much for having me, guys. And until next time, you've been listening to Redacted. 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 The number you have dialed has not been recognized. Please check and try again. The number you have dialed has been... Dialed. 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 Dialed.